I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but have you guys ever done something in your own power and realized that you did not spend enough time in prayer beforehand? So please join me in praying. As I'm sitting here up front, I'm realizing I have not brought this to the Lord in prayer as much as I should have. So please join me in prayer as we start our sermon today. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. God, please uh, be with me today as I, I open the word and speak from it. Help me to be your instrument and just to communicate the truths that you wanted to communicate to this body of believers. Help me to be a good voice for that for you today. And God, as we celebrate Advent, um, we not only look to your birth, but we also look forward to your coming again. Help this passage in scripture not only to instruct us and encourage us, but help it to make us to be more expectant and to wait with glad expectation. Help it to make us more like you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. It's interesting to not realize that I've prayed enough when I'm talking all this sermon about remembering what God has done in your life and how he has provided for you. So uh, strike number one. So apologize about that. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, there's uh, some excitement that happened um, this weekend. I'm not Chuck, so I'm not going to talk about some silly football game. Uh, but for those of you who are unaware... Some big news happened. Winston, the French Bulldog, won the Purina Dog Show this year. Um, maybe it's not for you guys, but for our family, that's something that we do every year. We, we kind of uh, get the TV antenna set up once a year, unless it's the Olympics. We'll bring the antenna up and we watch the Purina Dog Show. I don't really know why that started, um, but we do. We watch that, and, and this year, Winston, this French bulldog, really cute if you like French bulldogs, won. Now, that's become one of our traditions. And as we celebrated Thanksgiving, we have other traditions that we do as well. Um, we have this big meal together as a family. We enjoy time together. And then after that meal, we, the Earhart's, bring out all of our Christmas decorations. We get the trees set up, the lights, the ornaments. And then that night, um, all of us will spend the night on the floor as much under the tree as we can do that. But one of our traditions uh, that I'm sure is very common for you guys as well is that during the meal, we sit around the table and look back and tell each other what we're thankful for. Whether that was something that happened this last year or, or even longer, we, we look back and say, what has God done for us in our life that we can be thankful for? And I think there's a real value in remembering what God has done for us. First of all, I think it brings peace in knowing that God has cared for us and has provided for us over our lifetime and over this last year. It also brings hope and assurance that God is going to continue to care for us into the future. This provision doesn't stop. We, we share what God has done with the knowledge that he's going to continue. And then one of my favorite things about it is that it helps others see these things as well, to see how God has provided for us. And this act of sharing it out loud has values. It shows the value of fellowship. And we did this, in fact, with the 
junior high and the senior high this last week during our Friendsgiving, we had a little moment of just share something that you're thankful for, and that helps encourage us as the body. Well, this idea of, of sharing and, and remembering and being thankful, I think, really does a good job of bringing us to our passage today, which is going to be Mark 14, 12 through 25. So if you want to follow along with me, I will read that now. Well, I'll wait a little bit in case you need to turn. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they'd sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him and to one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, who, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, as I was reading this passage of scripture, one thing we, we try to do is we try to figure out what's the main idea here? Where is this passage of scripture leading us? What is the melody if it was a song? And as I was reading it, I was really struck by these different eras of God's provision that this passage encompasses. We see God's provision for his people in the past. We see God's provision for his people in the present, and we see it for the future as well. Again, this was such a great week then to celebrate a holiday where we try and remember what God has done for us, and we're reminded of what he will do for us. And so that starts with this era of God's provision in the past. And as they're found in verses 12 through 16, it's the Passover. Now there are parts in this passage, and specifically these four verses, that may seem strange. Uh, I like to picture those two disciples sort of like sulking in the street, following this guy with the water jug, and, and then going up to a house and saying, you know, where's our room? It's going to seem strange to us, like who goes and says, where's my room to someone? I promise you we're going to get to that. We'll, we'll talk about the culture of the time. But before we get there, I want to talk first about what they're celebrating. What was God's provision that they're reminded of? And that was the celebration of Passover. We read about Passover in Exodus chapter 12. I'm not going to read that passage. I assume many of you, if not all of you, know the story of the Passover, but I'm going to give a brief overview. 
we find the people of Israel in Exodus enslaved by the Egyptians. They have been in Egypt for over 400 years now, and their life for the last good chunk has been filled with very difficult things, sufferings, uh, persecution, even attacks against their, their baby boys. And though, so we find these people crying out to the Lord, and God hears them, and God reveals his power to the people and to Pharaoh through plagues. There are going to be 10 of them uh, before the, the Passover is the 10th one. So there's been up to nine plagues so far. And they've uh, been drastic examples of God's power and his provision for his people. And yet his power over the gods of Egypt. And yet we see that Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so then God reveals this final plague this death to the firstborn, the tenth plague. And not only does God say this is what's going to happen, but he also says here's a way to avoid that. Here's a path to salvation. And he tells the people about this Passover lamb, which is a blood sacrifice that they will kill the lamb, spread the blood above the door, and then have a meal together and, and worship God. And so as the people learn of this, they, Israelites, do this. And as the angel of death comes into Egypt for that tenth plague, God passes over the houses and spares the firstborn if they have the blood of the lamb spread on their door, their door frame. So we see that God is saving the people. He's starting out a nation He's providing for them all of these things. It's after this 10th plague that then Pharaoh's heart is finally less hard and he lets the people go and worship God. And, and we know the story continues, but eventually that people, Israel, becomes a nation. They eventually make it into the promised land. And we have this story of Passover, the event that happens, but we also, in Exodus 12, see that God instructs his people to continue that celebration for all time. So verse 24 in verse chapter 12 of Exodus says this, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. That brings us over a thousand years now into the future, into the time of Jesus, and the Israelites have been celebrating Passover for all of those years. Well, with anything that has that amount of legacy and history behind it, there's going to be a certain culture and a certain cultural expectation that accompanies it. And that's where we then find these awkward interactions and how that makes sense. So it may seem strange for us to think of these two guys coming up to someone and saying, hey, where's my guest room? If we were celebrating Thanksgiving and someone knocked on my door and said, hey, did you get my room ready? I'd be a little confused, to say the least. Um, but here... What we have is we have thousands of pilgrims coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they didn't have the ability to book an Airbnb online or to find the nearest hotel. And so the cultural expectation was that if you had an extra room in the city during Passover, you would let pilgrims stay there. Again, um, Israel's trying to make sure that all these people can come and celebrate and remember Passover well and, and not worry about their lodging. 
Now, since this room seems like it was already ready for the disciples and Jesus was able to know uh, beforehand how he was going to find the room, it seems as if this person had worked out beforehand with Jesus that he was going to provide a room for he and his disciples. Let's not forget that Jesus at this point is very well known. Just previously in the week, he'd entered the city with cheers and acclamations. It would have been an honor for a lot of people to host him. It would have been excited. And so Jesus and his disciples, with the normal cultural expectations of the time, are able to find a room to celebrate Passover. And again, the celebration of Passover is this very, very big deal. It's not to be skimped on. It's it's important. It is meant to bring the nation together. It is a time where they can remember what God has done for them. It's a chance to celebrate what God is going to do and to celebrate their freedom, their nation, all these things. This is the way that they remember God's provision. Well then, let's now continue on in this passage. We understand the cultural implications of Passover. We understand what Passover was in a way, what they were celebrating, and that brings us then to Mark 14, 17 through 21. I'm going to read it again. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Well, if the celebration of Passover was sort of that era of the remembrance of God's provision into the past, there needs to be an agent of change that moves us into that next era, which is the present. Because we as a church no longer celebrate Passover in the way that they did in the time of Jesus. And in this case, this agent of change is going to be the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is brought about by the betrayal of Judas. And this is just this reminder of Jesus' upcoming betrayal and who is going to be perpetrating it. That's the word. Now, there's a couple important things to pay attention to in this section that I want to draw your eyes to. First of all, we see that Jesus reveals his betrayer. Jesus has been pretty open about his death. Last week, Chuck was talking about the times that Jesus has said, I'm going to die for three days and then rise from the dead. And he's got all these different uh, examples and analogies, and he comes straight out and says it. And yet we're getting even more information now. We're getting the specifics of who is involved. This is even clearer in Matthew, the, the tag-along passage with Mark passage. Matthew 26, 23 through 25, I'm going to read that. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Last week, Chuck again talked about Judas quite a bit, so I don't want to cover that same ground, but it must have been pretty scary for Judas to realize that Jesus knew what was coming. But I also think it's interesting, even after Judas is revealed as the betrayer, no one really does anything to stop him. 
The disciples are there. We see Peter cut some guy's ear off in just a chapter or two. He's willing to defend Christ, and yet we see the disciples missing the point or missing key information. And I think this is what's happening. I think what's happening is that the disciples are making the teachings of Jesus subtle even when they're not. We see all of the disciples thinking, oh, surely not I. God, is it going to be me who betrays you? And yet when Jesus reveals that it's going to be Judas, they don't do anything. How could they miss what was going on? And I think if we stop for a moment and maybe evaluate our own lives, we realize how often do we do that same thing. We, we love subtlety when it comes to Jesus' teaching because it can leave us some wiggle room. Are we allowing space for our own thoughts and our own desires to go against the words or the actions of God? Are we so caught up in our own thoughts that we miss the truth that's happening in front of us? And so I think the disciples are there. You know, Jesus is known for being a subtle teacher at times. He uses parables. And yet here when he's clear, they get distracted, they get caught up, and is it me? And they think, well, that must just be some sort of subtle parable teaching, and they don't respond. But now then we get to this phrase that we've heard Jesus use throughout the Gospels, and that is this phrase, the Son of Man. We see that in verse 21. This is his title for himself. Jesus has many names, and we know the names of Jesus, but Jesus calls himself Son of Man much more than his other titles. And I think there are two reasons for this, and they're very important reasons why he calls himself the Son of Man. Because in a way, I could also call myself the Son of Man. But it means something different for Jesus. And so firstly, he's making clear that he is fully man. This is a very important thing for our salvation. Jesus is an effective representative. He is fully man. He understands what we have experienced, what we go through. And so he's an effective representation. There's this idea of the hypostatic union, which is that Jesus was fully man while being fully God at the same time, 100% both. If you ask me to explain that mathematically, clearly I will fail, but we know it to be true because Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. But not only is he saying, I am fully man, he is also claiming this exalted divine state. And we see that, we find that, this term Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, this is me. He's claiming that title of son of man to people who know the scriptures, who have read the scriptures and know Daniel. They're going to say, Jesus is not just claiming to be the son of man as in a human. He's claiming this exalted state. This son of man does things that I, as a son of man, would not have the right nor the power to do. 
He comes before God, the Ancient of Days. He receives service from all people. He has an eternal kingdom and dominion over all. And so we see that as Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's making these two statements. I am fully man, and yet I am this exalted one, this divine being that is going to have this eternal heavenly kingdom. So with this background being the Passover celebration, this era of God's provision taking place in the past, and Jesus now is helping his disciples process that a change is coming, right? There's going to be betrayal, there's going to be death, there's going to be resurrection. The disciples are now ready to celebrate the Passover the way that they've been celebrating it for years. But Jesus instead institutes something a little different. And that is the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, in verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. How many times have we done communion in our lives? If you grew up in a church like mine, we did it the first Sunday of every month for every month of the year. So that was 12 times a year, and I don't want to do the math, and I should have done it before, but that's a lot of communions for me that I've taken, right? Um, the, the risk here is that this turns into rote obedience or just something that we do at church, and we might miss some of the implications. And so as the Lord institutes the Lord's Supper, I think it's important that we evaluate what does that mean. Remember that this takes place during Passover. These men have been celebrating Passover for years, but Jesus does something new. Instead of this bread and this drink representing the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed for the Passover... Instead, now Jesus is saying, this is my body, and this is my blood. He usurps the place of the lamb in the story of Passover. From now on, whenever you, my disciples, celebrate Passover, instead of remembering the lamb, you're going to remember me, and my better sacrifice, and my better salvation, and my better provision. Even as I studied this passage and talked it over with friends this week, I was realizing that when we miss what Passover meant to the Jews, we miss what communion can mean to us. We get to remember that God has provided for all of his people past and present. We can add in the sacrifice of, of the sacrificial lamb at Passover and then see that Jesus is this better sacrifice. And then that is where we're at now. We're in the era of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and that then leaves God's provision for the future. And that's really specified in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So now we have this look, we're in the present, and we have this look to the future. We celebrate communion as the local church now, but Jesus doesn't end there. He takes a moment to remind us that we have this amazing future to look forward to 
as well. There will come a time when we won't be remembering anymore, but we will be in fellowship with Jesus, celebrating together. And so we have this Passover lamb, we have this communion, and then we have this bridal supper, this marriage supper of the lamb that we look forward to. And this celebration now that we partake in with communion is a symbol of sacrifice and salvation with the knowledge that it's coming ahead as well. So what we see through all of this is we see God use the most powerful symbol of grace and salvation that the people of Israel have had, which is Passover. And he used that to magnify the grace and salvation that is offered by Jesus. Now I'm going to get ahead of the story a bit here in Mark, but I don't think a spoiler alert is required when it's happened 2,000 years ago. We know that Jesus is going to be betrayed by Jesus. We know this will eventually lead to Jesus' death. But then we also know that death is defeated. We know that he rises from the grave. He pays the price for our sins. He takes that place of the sacrificial lamb and not only saves us from death, but saves us to an eternity with him in heaven. He is a much more effective sacrifice than the lamb. This is what we celebrate and look forward to. Jesus doesn't end it with sort of this no hope or, or this I'm dead now and remember me that I died for you, but he ends it with this idea of the kingdom of heaven is coming. That brings us then to some application points that I want to end with. Firstly, I think it's important that we remember. We should remember the Bible stories of God's provision. We should remember our own stories of God's provision, how God has worked for us. But not only do we remember individually, I think it's important that we remember collectively that we pass it on from one generation to the next. Have you taught your children? Have you taught the children in this church? Have you cared for them? Have you shown them? Have you modeled for them what it is that we're supposed to be remembering? Why does the church have a church calendar? We just celebrated the first week of Advent. That's something we do every year. If we just assume that it's so we can have pretty candles on the stage, we're missing the implication, the excitement about this waiting for Christ to come. These things that we do yearly have value and meaning. Are we passing those meanings on or are we just passing on the traditions? And then I also think it's important to remember so that we can be encouraged by these things as a body of Christ. God has provided and God will provide. I also think that we as a church can celebrate and give thanks. Let's remember that verse 25 hints at this coming kingdom of God that we will be reunited. There are good times coming ahead. And as I was studying this passage, it really made me reevaluate my opinion or my thoughts about communion. Uh, Growing up, again, I was very much taught that when communion happens, you as a good child will sit there, you'll confess your sins, you'll think about the things that you've done, and then you'll sort of sit there somberly and quietly and and wait for the, the elements to be passed. And that's not wrong. Those aren't bad things. But I think what I realized I was missing was a little bit of the celebration. 
This should be a part of it as well. Let's confess our sins so that we're in the right place to take communion, to remember what God has done for us, but then give thanks with an expectation for what's coming. It was an attitude adjustment for me. And then I also think we as a church body can pay attention. We pay attention to what the Spirit is saying in your life. Don't be like the disciples. Don't add in subtlety when there isn't. Listen to what the Spirit says. Don't cloud with subtlety what is meant to be clear. Then also I think we can pay attention and not miss opportunities to share this truth with others. We have an opportunity to celebrate with the world what God has done, what Jesus did on the cross that now is better than what the sacrificial lamb did at Passover. We have that chance to share that with people so that they can join us in that kingdom of heaven with Jesus. And I think sometimes we miss those, so pay attention to that as well. Let's pray. Please pray with me. God, help us to be more like you. Help us to read these passages in scripture and be challenged to love more and to care more for those around us. Help us to evaluate the things we do and make sure that we're not falling into the trap of just rote repetition, but instead we are excited about the things that you have done and will continue to do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.